Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah was called to be a mouthpiece for the Lord to the southern kingdom of Judah in uh, what could be seen as maybe the heyday and the peak uh, in some ways of the southern kingdom, the divided kingdom. And uh, he was a prophet under some very godly men. The kings of those times that were godly brought about, because they had the authority, some good things towards the Lord in that time, but the people generally were not following the Lord. And so when the good king dies and then a bad king arises, the people quick slip very quickly out of their godly habits and they get back into paganism and idolatry and it's downhill very quickly. And so we have been in the chapters starting in chapter 7 and running through chapter 12, what we call the, the book of Emmanuel within the the prophecies of Isaiah, where this, this character Emmanuel is introduced. We looked last week at the dangers in chapter 10 of not responding to the Lord, and also then some strong words towards Assyria, who was going to be the instrument in the Lord's hand to chastise God's people. And uh, a reason I bring that up, because remember I made a point of drawing that the Lord was using a lot of symbolism that had to do with trees, and men were trees, and he was using an axe, these kinds of things. And so when we get into chapter 11, verse 1, we see that that terminology, that symbolic language is still used. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. You know, this comes in the midst of some really heavy burdens the Lord had towards Israel and then this condemnation of Assyria. You know, it's doubtful Assyria would have read what Isaiah had to say, but still, you know, God's people needed to see that they weren't the only ones, you know, on God's radar. And you can feel that way sometimes, right? You, as a believer, don't get away with anything, you know? You can feel that way. You, don't, you can't get away with anything at all. The Lord's just got you on very short leader there. And, you know, that's a, that's, I'm glad for that for myself. I get in trouble really easily if I, if I didn't have that. But the Lord wants his people to know, or it, it can feel like, I'm sorry, it can feel like he's after sin in my life. But what about these other people? They get away with it all the time. You know, it seems like there's nothing going on in their lives, these, the people who don't know him. And the Lord is saying, I think, through those words to Assyria, is that, you know, sin's not okay in anybody, anywhere. And he knows all about everybody's sin. But because we're the children of God, and we know better, and have more light and know the truth, we're responsible for more. He knows the dangers of sin, and he loves us, and he won't let us go down paths of sin. And so he's quick to to draw our attention to it. But remember, when we pick up chapter 11, verse 1, all of that, it's just kind of like all of that gets to be, you know, you need a breath of fresh air in, in light of all of the, that judgment that's coming. And, and I, think, I think he just kind of comes up for air in the midst of that, all of those woes and those judgments. And it's just a big breath of clear glory in what the Messiah is going to do. And just a beautiful picture here. Again, you know, that, that the idea of the, the trees being chopped down and stuff, we get the picture of this dead stump looking 
This old, rotten, old, dead stump looks like everybody's just forgotten about. He says, out of this stump is going to come one perfect branch, one rod. The stem of Jesse, of course, that was David's father, and it did look like a dead stump. By the time Jesus rolls around, you know, the last king of Judah in the Davidic line has passed away 600 years before. You know, they have not had... By the time Jesus rolls around, they have not had a, a king on their throne for 600 years. That's a long time for you know a stump to, to, and using the same imagery to sit there and, and not grow life. It looked like it was dead. But the promise had been made to David by the Lord that his family would have the privilege of owning the authority for the, to sit on that throne. And it was held for them all that time, though... They, because of their disobedience, lost the privilege of having that. So here comes this one, this, this rod, the stem from Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. And then it says, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And it gives us these attributes of the Spirit. Whether you want to say there's seven there, or it's at six, plus the Spirit of the Lord, you know, I don't know how you want to divide that up. Either way, the Spirit of the Lord, you know, that talks about purity and holiness. It shall rest upon him. Of course, uh, when Jesus came and was baptized, you know that when he came up out of the water, the Spirit came down upon him and rested upon him in an outward demonstration of what was spiritually happening, right? That the Spirit was upon him. And then uh, immediately after that, he goes to Nazareth, one of his first stops as he comes up uh, after that baptism, and then after his temptation, he emerges back out of his you know forty days of temptation, and he shows up in Nazareth. And what does he do? He takes the scroll of Isaiah, opens it to a specific place, and reads Isaiah chapter sixty-one, where he says, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord, holy and pure." And then it's also the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. They seem to be paired up, and I think they're, they're interesting to note that they are, but there's six of them here. Uh, wisdom, uh, you know, wisdom is the right thing, the godly thing to do, to say in any circumstance. You know, think of, think of the, the times and places where Jesus just was marvelous and exactly what had to be said and needed to be said, and his enemies just walked away dumbfounded, going, wow, what an answer. Um, then also the uh, spirit of wisdom and understanding. The word understanding there is more like um, with the idea of discernment, and that's got the idea of, of telling what is fake, telling what's, you know, truth from forgery. And, you know, he was a master at that. Jesus was never trapped, though they sent how many people after him to try to trap him in what he uh, and try to set him against or say something against the law, put him at odds against the law or the, the word of God to, to discredit him. Never, never were they ever able to do that. Also, the spirit of um, counsel and might. Uh, counsel, um, not only is it, is it uh, for himself, but for others now. To speak the truth to people in a way that will always bring about the right direction, the good direction, the godly direction. And um, also the spirit of might. 
their counsel and might and having the authority and the power that can't be stopped, right? Um, you know, I think, again, again, these are paired up. Back in there in wisdom and understanding, you know, you can, you can have wisdom, um, from what you know. Uh, you know, from the facts that are presented to you, you can try to find the right thing to do. Um, but you may not have full understanding. Or you might be getting fooled by a fake. And you see why those are those are matched up together. Or you or you might you might be able to tell what the, what the what's fake and stuff, but you don't know what to do. You need the wisdom, or you need the understanding. They are perfectly together there with the Lord, and counsel and might. Um, you know to speak the truth to people who will, that that will always be the right direction. Well, you might not have the power to make that happen, but He has the authority, and has the power to do that. You see how those two are pa- paired up. I think beautifully. And then also the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Um, again, the spirit of knowledge to know everything perfectly and completely. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, anybody wants to admit it, be honest about it. We just, we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> and, uh, um, to have full knowledge in any situation, what a magnificent thing. And he did. And the spirit of the and the fear of the Lord, uh, you know, he willingly kept himself in a place of submission, respect, and honor to God the Father. And uh, um, you know, as we went through Proverbs, that um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And uh, so they have to go together. And so these things were uh, beautifully uh, set out in our Lord. Um, when he was here ministering, and we could see them in action, you know, he him as a perfect man um, has the spirit working through him um, that he upon um, relationship with the Lord, uh, with the spirit working through him. There were times in his in his uh, ministry on earth where you'd have to say, you know, that bit of thing happening with him was was his divinity, like the transfiguration, obviously his divinity, his divine nature coming through. But uh, the rest of the time, uh, he, you know, he did things as a perfect man and laying aside his own prerogatives and privileges as, as being divine, yet he submitted all that to the Father. Scripture says he emptied himself and the Spirit worked through him as a perfect man. And so the spirit of the Lord is upon our uh, spirit of the Lord is upon uh, the Lord in just a beautiful way, uh, perfectly, in a perfect way in His ministry. And it says, verse three: His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and He shall not judge by the sight of His eyes, nor decide by the hearing of His ears. Verses uh, one and two. You know, if you if you want to. Um, certainly see them fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. Uh, but these next few verses, 3, 4, and 5, probably are best seen as fulfilled in his uh, fully in his second coming. Certainly his delight was still in the, in the fear of the Lord in his first coming. Um, and, he, and he certainly was not subject to weakness and judgment when he was here. I like that it says, His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. Um, 
Boy, isn't that the weakness in any human justice system? That, uh, you know, even our justice system, we try to, uh, we've set up a system whereby you, you know, you try to find the truth and judge rightly, but it's so much limited by whatever facts are brought up. And it's maybe not all the facts are brought up. And, and uh, you know, so much of our justice system um, can be, unfortunately, you know, a jury of 12 peers who are there to decide who's got the better lawyer. And um, uh, unfortunately, it can go that way. It won't be that way in this, when, when the Lord comes and he sets up his millennial kingdom. Uh, it'll be perfect justice, and no, it'll be no more parsing of verbs and that kind of stuff. It'll be perfect righteousness and justice and judgment, and it will be wonderful. Um, so we're looking forward to that. Again, his second coming, uh, after the tribulation, he comes and sets up that millennial kingdom that is perfectly righteous and enforces righteousness, brings righteousness to the world. Verse 4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Um, I think that Paul may have been thinking and even maybe quoting this verse when he, in Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, talked about the end times. And by the Spirit, he says this in chapter 2, verse 8, 2 Thessalonians, the, the, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, destroy with the brightness of his coming. And uh, uh, strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Uh, you know, we have quoted these verses recently on Christmas when we talked about Psalm 2. It says, uh, as the, as the um, conversation goes on in Psalm 2, Within the councils of the uh, of the Trinity, um, the um, the one who is called the Son is uh, uh, told by the Father. He says, "Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel." Of course, over in Revelation chapter twelve, um, in the vision of uh, chapter 12, it says that I, Israel bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And that will happen during the millennium. Uh, he will settle all disputes between nations. And uh, there will be perfect righteousness. And uh, we, we as um, believers uh, and longing for righteousness on the earth ought to swoon when we think of the millennium. I mean, it is going to be magnificent in every way, um, everything good and right uh, about human beings will be, will be magnified and exalted. And everything that's debased and unjust and twisted and gross and perverse will all be, um, will, will all be put down and, um, and judged. And uh, it'll be a wonderful time. Uh, these passages, I think, um, just give us a glimpse, just a whiff of that that millennium, and um, uh, it, it ought to cause us to long for his coming that way. Um, verse 5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Um, righteousness and faithfulness. Um, the, the Lord's 
You know, the righteousness and faithfulness um, speak about his character, and he is perfect in righteousness and faithfulness in his character. And so that's it's manifested in what he does and what he says. It's inescapable, so much so that it's it's like he's he wears it, right? And then these verses that you're very familiar with, probably, verse 6, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Now that happens today, but they're having lunch, and um, the young goat is the lunch. Um, but during the millennium, it says, The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. The young ones shall lie down together, um, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So uh, this is, again, we believe, talking about the time of the millennium when um, a lot of the curse is reversed on the earth. And this is, this is very noteworthy. Um, when you go back and you read the early chapters, chapters of Genesis, you see that the Lord obviously um, creates... Uh, all the animal kingdoms, um, you know, as we would think of them, um, on a day, what day did he create all the animals on? Sunday school can tell you that answer. We review that with them all the time. Day six, right? He creates all the land animals. And then he brings them to Adam to see what he would name them, right? And then chapter three, uh there's a conversation going on between Eve and a serpent, and she's not all taken back by that. Uh, you know, it seems to be kind of a common thing. Uh, you know, it doesn't specifically say it in the scriptures, I know, but I interject my own personal preferences there. I, you know, I think there was a greater, a much greater degree of connection between the animals and humans than there is now. I know that's the case. Fear of human beings wasn't placed upon uh, any of the other creatures in the world until after the flood. Um, and after the flood, man was given uh, permission. I don't know if he was looking for it before then, but he was told it was okay to eat animals. And at the same time, so the animals aren't easy pickings, um, fear of man is put on every creature. And um, during the millennium, it looks like those couple of things are going to be reversed. Uh, first, the fear of man will be, will be taken off and reversed amongst the animal, all the animal kingdoms. Uh, birds, fish, land creatures. But then also, it seems like they'll all be converted to um, being herbivores, right? Vegisaurus, um, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so suddenly it says there plainly that the lion's going to eat straw like an ox. So he's got a he's got a dental reconfiguration coming. You can't most likely. And it says the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand down the viper's den. Now that's bad news today. Uh, but then um, all of that fall on the on the on the animal kingdom and the, and the creation that's subject to futility and be released and reversed. Um, you know, I, I, sometimes I, I watch, I like to watch the nature documentaries 
Um, you know, they're, they're not done from a godly standpoint. They're done usually from an evolutionary, materialist standpoint. Um, and they commented on that way. You know, and the, and the, the uh, that mindset that, that rejects creation and holds to millions of years and uh, rejects God as a creator, you know, they do an actually a very good job at that kind of documentary stuff and, and research in the animal kingdom. And they do that because they're looking for meaning in life in those. They're trying to find out where they came from and the meaning of life as they do in-depth research and document that stuff. They're not going to find it there, obviously. But, um, you know, as, as I watch those, those documentaries, it's just pretty, it shows the beauty and the majesty of, of the Lord, obviously, in the creation, the immense creativity he has. But it also puts on the fall in glorious technicolor. You ever heard of a Komodo dragon? It's about a, it's, it's about a 200 pound lizard that eats deer. And the way it captures them is it hides in the bush on, the, on that island. I'm glad they're just on one island. And uh, the poor deer that have to, you know, find themselves living there just minding their own business. And this 200-pound lizard just darts out and just bites it on its leg and then leaves it alone because these, these lizards, their mouth is so gross full of bacteria that that bite is going to get infected on that deer and it's going to slowly over a period of days eventually fall over dead or slowly die, but while it's still alive and still trying to struggle to get away from it, it gets, gets piled on by these 200-pound lizards and it gets, gets chewed to pieces. Is that disgusting? Is that the fall? You bet. That's not going to happen anymore when Jesus comes and all that's going to be reversed. And, uh, uh, you know, again, when I think of the, of the millennium, I think when we think of the millennium, I think it ought to be a time uh, we ought to think very longingly towards the millennium. Verse 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. Just giving us tiny little glimpses into the millennium, that the, that the Messiah comes for the whole world, and the whole world is blessed by him, and uh, his resting place shall be glorious is a very, very short way of talking about the, um, the exaltation of Israel. And uh, during the millennium, when there will be... Uh, the headquarters of Jesus' worship and his worldwide administration out of Israel. And it shall come to pass, verse 11, in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Um, now, uh, I've seen a couple of interpretations of this. Um, one is that this refers to, continues to refer to the millennium, that after the end of the tribulation, um, 
There uh, is a gathering of Jewish people from around the world that remain, and uh, they are brought to Israel. That's what it could refer to, might. It also could refer to possibly um, the uh, time after the Babylonian captivity, and um, that could be seen as the second gathering to Israel, or second gathering of the Lord's people to Israel, either one. Verse 13, also the envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Again, the the divided kingdom, um, they did not have positive relationships. Uh, After Solomon's death, uh, the kingdom was divided, and the area occupied by the ten northern tribes the the largest bit of land up there, and the most uh, and the largest tribe of that area um, was was Ephraim, and so it kind of came a name for the uh, a secondary name for um, that the northern parts uh, of the divided kingdom. That they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines towards the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the river and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. Um, This, uh, again, this may refer to... um, the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of Egypt, and then with his mighty wind, he will shake this fist over the river. That would be the Euphrates, and strike it in the seven streams, make men cross over dry stride. At the end of the tribulation, if this refers to that, um, you know, the tribulation is going to bring about major uh, geological changes to the earth. And uh, it could be referring to that time when the, um, the Euphrates River changes so dramatically that it's reduced to... Um, seven streams. In verse 16, it says, There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria, as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. In other words, there will be no hindrances at all. The world will help them regather, is the idea there. Now again, we've reached the last chapter of the book of Emmanuel within the book of Isaiah. And it's interesting that it ends with a hymn of praise. Um, all of the, that the Lord is trying to do in his prophecies through Isaiah was to call the people back to repentance and give them spiritual eyes to see that, that it's worthless to go on in their idolatry and their rebellion and to turn towards him. And so this is the response he was looking for. Chapter 12, just six verses. There's two songs here, very, very brief he says, in that day, what day would that be? Well, you know, the Lord, um, the Lord, as he um, looks across, you know, human history, he's not subject to time as we are. And so, you know, I got a calendar up there, we're planning the next year, and I can say, on that day, we're going to do this. And on that day, we're going to do that. And I think that's kind of what he's doing. He's pointing to different days and... Um, this will be a time when uh, uh, when people come back to him. Um, maybe it'll be, um, you know, at the end of the tribulation and, and 
when they uh, call upon him, when Jews finally uh, recognize Jesus as a Messiah. Certainly, uh, but these things also can be for anyone, really, at any time, who wants to turn their heart toward the Lord. This, these kinds of things that are said here, the heart that's represented in here, this, these passages, says, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, and of course, behold just means check it out or look. Check it out. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. And that's one of the two songs that are, that are briefly spoken of, uh, put it before us here. Um, this first one is between the Lord and the person speaking. He's kind of saying things of devotional nature to the Lord, uh, saying what he believes so that the Lord can hear it, how he's turned to the Lord, and so he, so the Lord can hear it, and he can hear himself say it. I think that's really good. Um, he says, though you were, I praise you, Though you were angry with me, uh, uh, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Um, you know, I think in, in that he acknowledges that he was guilty and the Lord was rightfully angry with him. That's, that's an important part of coming to the Lord, right? You gotta admit that there's a problem and it's my fault. I gotta admit, I gotta, I gotta confess that I've sinned and, uh, and that the Lord is, is, justly angry with me you know the psalm 11 psalm 7 verse 11 says the lord is a just judge and he is angry with the wicked every day and you know why it says that because the lord is a just judge and he's angry with the wicked every day um, this is echoed clearly in jesus's words in john chapter 3 we all know john chapter 3 right for for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We know that verse. But that wasn't all he said in that breath. He said also, he who believes in him is not condemned, and that's good news. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Uh, there is a condemnation on every person. And that condemnation will be satisfied one way or another. And we can either force God to work that out in a way he does not want to, and forcing him to work it out on us if we refuse the free gift of salvation that he has. But like the verses he, he said just before that, he sent his son so that his son would suffer that condemnation and be responsible for our failed lives, for every way in which we have violated God's word and his intentions are why we're alive. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And uh, he's willing to make himself personally responsible for that and own it and pay for it. And uh, then he rises from the dead after the, after the cross, where he pays our sin to prove that it's been paid for, paid for. So your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. 
And, uh, you know, so much of, I know as I reflect on my own life, so much of what I'm praying for these days, now that I'm a little bit older in the Lord, uh, is comfort for myself and for others. I mean, all the healing and the um, strengthening of faith and the help, comfort. And I'm glad for that, you know, that he is the God of all comfort. Uh, and he says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song, and he also has become my salvation. We see this twice in just two verses. Um, he says, uh, verse 2, beginning verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. And then the end of that sentence is, He also has become my salvation. Yeah, um, you know, it, I think the way this is, you could read this when it says, for Yah, the Lord, you know, for us Gentiles, that kind of escapes us, the Hebrew there. Um, but it, it would be like the Lord, the Lord himself is my salvation. You know, he, he he's the one who needs to save, but he just didn't set up something and push you through it to get you saved. He himself is our salvation. And... um um, so he just wants us to believe what he says. He says, I will trust and not be afraid. So he just wants us to trust what he has said uh, in his word, the truth, the facts that he's given us, and uh, he'll solve our sin problem and give us a free gift of salvation. So I think this praise, this song of praise, is very appropriate for somebody who has turned towards the Lord. Then verse 3, he says, Therefore, with joy, you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. Um, and I get this very beautifully said. Um, the In the Middle East, you know, water is life. Very arid areas. And cities pretty much are around a spring of water. And, uh, you know, this is not saying that there are many ways to be saved. It's not saying that there's lots of different wells you can draw from and be saved through them. It's not what's being said. Um, it's because look at the verb. It says, "You for therefore, for with joy, you will draw water. You will. He's already saved. And this is indicating this, this drawing water from the wells of salvation is an idea of an ongoing supply uh, of life-giving water. And, and that's a living relationship with the Lord um, that we ha- have set before us and offered us. Um, in his Holy Spirit that he's given us. That's frequently spoken of in symbolic form as water. Didn't Jesus say, John chapter 7, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And out of his being will, innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then elsewhere in, in Scripture, especially in John, the word of God is likened to water. And so uh, with joy... We get to draw upon those precious, essential resources of his Holy Spirit and his living word on a daily basis and be refreshed and filled. That's a beautiful, beautiful phrase. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And uh, I like the way this is going. Chapter 12, this six verses, the guy gets saved Right? There's a confession of sin, and then there's the invitation to this, being filled with the Spirit and walking in 
living, full relationship with him? Well, what's the next step? Verse 4, in that day you will say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples. This is towards the world now. Somebody who's been saved. What a beautiful thing. You know, is there anything greater than the, than the saved sinner turning towards those who are lost and saying, Listen to what has happened to me. Let me tell you the truth about the Lord. Declare his deeds among the people. Make mention, mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. It sounds a lot like the song we sing. Cry aloud and shout for joy, for great in great in your midst is the Holy One. And so, uh, uh, verses 4 through 6 is an outward call to take the de- declaration of the Lord's goodness to the world. Go be a witness. Filled with the Spirit, saved. I think chapter 12, beautiful rendition of of repentance and a life now lived for the Lord. And then we get to chapter 13, and uh, we end the book of Emmanuel, get to another significant section of is of Isaiah. Um, chapters 13 through 23, we are going to get into uh, some prophecies, um, proclamations um, against Gentile nations in the Middle East, uh, at that time, and judgments that will fall upon them. And uh, again, um, you know, I think the, th- the one thing that comes out through these chapters very powerfully is that God is in control. And, um, you know, it looks, <laughs> it looks a lot like the world's out of control when you turn the news on and look around at what's happening in the world. Uh, what's going on in Iran and North Korea with a uh, powered-up nuclear bomb, an H-bomb? Maybe. Goodness, if anything, they shouldn't have. That's it. Um, and it just looks like the world is out of control and people are scrambling for answers. And yet the Lord, I think, in, in, plainly in, in some of these texts, um, we know that the Lord is... Very much in control, and the Lord and the Lord is seeing to it that the world heads towards its appointed end, and nothing is escaping Him. Um, you know, be, again, we said it early, early in the study. It's easy to feel like you're the only one under His His divine chastisement. Everybody's getting away with things out there. No, they're not. The Lord is patient and wanting them to come to salvation. Not, nobody's getting away with anything, and, and He wants. He wants his people to know that, and he does that, I think, through these, um, to his, his people, Israel and Judah, I think he, he, to Judah, he s- says these proclamations um, so that they would, they would understand that. The burden against Babylon, verse 1, chapter 13, which Isaiah, the son of Amaz, saw. Lift up the banner on high, on a high mountain, raise your voice to them, wave your hand. That they may enter the gates of the nobles. Uh, I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger. Those who rejoice in my exaltation. Uh, this ought to 
you know, it kind of escapes us these days because we're so far removed in time from this. But at the time of Isaiah, um, the proclamation against Babylon would have been remarkable. Uh, Babylon was not uh, a world empire at this time. Assyria was. It's going to be decades and decades and decades before a Babylon rises up and dominates the area, and then um, uh, uh, ascends to total dominance in the area after a few critical battles against Egypt and some things, and 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 exerts its its dominance completely over the Middle East there. Um, and but more importantly, it's going to be hundreds of years before uh, Babylon is judged, and so uh, uh, this is quite remarkable. Um, he says, a noise of a multitude in the mountains like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Okay, um, he's actually going to talk to Babylon here. Um, and... Uh, again, you know, we know that the Lord looks at uh, the landscape of human history, and uh, as He makes proclamations about one time and against one nation, in this case Babylon, because Babylon's going to show up much later uh, in the scope of um, end times. Um, you know, as He talks about it in an earlier time. He very quickly shifts towards the last time also. And so we've got to be careful of and recognize when he's shifting between a short-term um, proclamation and a long-term one. There will, be a full, there will be a fulfillment of these things in the short term when Babylon is overthrown. And we're going to see, if you look down in verse 17, he declares that it will be the Medes uh, who are the ones that he is bringing in. And we know from Daniel and from world history, that it was a coalition between um, two people groups, the Medes, whom we today know as the Kurds, and uh, Persia, um, who changed their name to Iran um, in World War II. Um, the, Medes and the, Kur uh, the Medes and the Persians uh, formed a coalition to uh, that came up ascendant, and it was dominated by the Medes in Daniel chapter, you know, Daniel chapters four and things tell us about that overthrowing of um, of, Dan of uh, Babylon in one night. Um, uh, verse six, <clears throat> but he he because he, he's talking about proclamations against Babylon, but then he's going to step out and recognize that because this is so familiar to what's going on in the future, sometimes the language obviously indicates a much farther, fuller, fuller fulfillment. And verse 6 is it. Wail for the day of the Lord is hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Certainly that was true when Babylon was overthrown under Belteshazzar by the Medes, but it has its fullest fulfillment much later. 
and the tip-off, I think, is in verse 8. And they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. Okay, that little phrase, pains of a woman in childbirth, those of you who are biblically literate, and I think that's probably everybody here in, in eschatology, recognize that term as uh, referring to the last days. And you're going to see that. I think you got to be sensitive to that terminology. They will be amazed at one another, and their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. He will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. Plainly, this now is, he, he has stepped from this judgment of Babylon in the short term to something much, much greater. Uh, the sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Jesus, I think, uh, talked about this in Matthew, right, 24, the uh, Olivet Discourse. He used terminology just like this. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 11, and I will punish the world for its evil. Verse 11, back in Isaiah 13. And the wicked for their iniquity, and I will halt the arrogance of the proud, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, uh, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Nobody knows who that golden wedge of Ophir is. Um, and at the end of that tribulation, the world's population will be greatly reduced. If you follow through the math, like three-quarters of the world's population is eliminated in Revelation. Again, Revelation 6 through 19 is, I think, uh, the fulfillment, highest fulfillment of all these um, these texts um, during the Great Tribulation. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. It shall be as the hunted gazelle and as a sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people and everyone will flee to his own land. And I think he's come back now to uh, the short-term Babylon um, of, of just uh, you know Daniel's time. Everyone who is found will be thrust through, and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. Now we know... That is the case. And again, this is even weirder because the Medes were little more than um, an affiliation of tribes at this time. To say that the Medes were going to ascend as a world power and conquer a, the dominant world power at that time, only the Lord could say that. I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver and as for gold, they will not delight in it because the, there's nothing you can offer them. They already have it all. Also, their bows will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children. 
and Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation. Nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. But wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls. That's really just... um, uh, the word there is a howling creature. I prefer owls. <laughs> um, I don't know what the howling creature is. No thanks. Um, although we have a lab, and sometimes that's a howling creature. No, um, ostriches will dwell there, and wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in their citadels, and jackals in their pleasant palaces. And her, uh, her time is near, and her days will not be prolonged. Um, that's the proclamation against uh, Babylon. But actually it goes down through um, verse 11 of chapter 14. Um, we can get through that because it all goes together. Um, but there will be mercy on Jacob, for the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel. That would be good news for them to read, right? I mean, despite all their failures, despite all their goof-ups and the mess they made and the horrible witness that they were, and their total failure, yet still God's not done with them, and settle them in their own land. How important will that be? Because Babylon, you know, what they what they would do in those conquering armies at that time, what they would do to ensure that the uh, conquered nations uh, did not present uh, opposition in the long term to their dominance of the area is they would take up people groups, take large portions of the people groups, and re- and relocate them. And so uh, 70 years, right, uh, Judah and Israel is in um, captivity in Babylon. 70 years, the Lord says, no, you're, you're going to come back, and I'm going to plant you in your land again. The strangers will be joined with them, and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Then people will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel possess them for the servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive whose captives they were and rule over their oppressors. There will be a complete reversal, the Lord is saying. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear, and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say. In other words, he's saying, I think the Lord is saying, okay, when you go into captivity in Babylon, here I've got something for you to memorize so that you know that my purposes for you are not over with. I'm going to keep my promises. Something to just remind yourself that you're coming back. A little ditty against the uh, king of Babylon. Middle of verse 4. How the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, who struck the people in wrath with a continuous stroke. He was just a continuous, you know, whacking machine in his in the imagery there. He who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders. And the whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. You know, I, I think of in our own time, uh, uh, you know, when, when 
an area is subject to just continuous conflict. Think of the end of World War II, how much they must have enjoyed the release from all that conflict when it was over with. Whole earth is at rest and quiet, and they break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. I guess I think that's more that language of men being trees. And then he gives us a little bit of the behind-the-scenes view. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. Now, at this time, the um, administration of the afterlife was um, in line with what we read in Luke 16, that the dead were held in a couple of different places. There was one place where they were held, and it seems it was a place of torment uh, for those who were uh, uh, unfaithful to the Lord, or whatever, whatever that looks like. They, that place of torment, remember the rich man goes there? Then there's another um, closely associated area, but separated, where it's a place of comfort. And we have that name. It's called Abraham's bosom that way. And a um, place where Abraham, being the father of the faithful, was there waiting patiently for the Lord to fulfill his salvation in the Messiah. And um, the imagery here is that this king of Babylon is dead. This would be Belteshazzar out of the book of Daniel. And, uh, you know, as he descends down there into the place of torment, hell is excited about you to meet your coming. There's like five minutes of paparazzi down there, and it says it stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. Oh, we heard about you. Yeah, people have been coming down here talking about how big and bad you were. All the kings of the nations, they shall all speak and say to you, Have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? You're just like us. Wow, you were the, you were unapproachable in your power and your, uh, you know, your wealth and your privilege. And yet now you are just like us. We are all in the same place. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your stringed instruments, and in this picture, the maggot is spread under you and worms cover you. Um, look, if, if there is a picture in the New Testament that encapsulates what we see here, it's when Jesus said, What is a profit of man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? That's the king of Babylon right there. He was at the pinnacle of everything. Power, prestige, uh, he had everything, and yet his life came to an end, and he had nothing. And uh, he had gained the whole world, but he had lost his soul. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the meaning there also is that it doesn't matter who you are. I mean, there's important people that the world notices and takes um, stock of, and then there's Joe Nobody, you know? Three people know who you are or I am, and and we pass off the scene, and it's, you know, we're forgotten in 15 minutes, and who knows? And But the Lord says, your value 
is more than the whole world. Um, what would it, he says, you know, your value is more than the whole world because you, you somebody here, somebody who gained the whole world lost his soul. Yet the person who, who the world doesn't acknowledge and forgets and doesn't take notice of, and yet the Lord does, that person, that person is saved and is the object of the Lord's attention and love and glory and mercy forever. And the world passes away and is forgotten about, and that person remains the special treasure of the Lord forever. You know, that's, that's a wonderful place, and that's a very comforting thing for the meek of the earth. We're going to finish there because the next section goes and gives us a glimpse into spiritual realities that require a lot more time. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord. We love your word, Lord. We love how it speaks to us and the light it gives us. We never tire of looking at your word, receiving something new from it. We want to be disciples that are following you and learning from you. We delight in you being glorified through us. So have your way with us this week. Fill us with your spirit for these things. We love you, Lord, and we pray in your name. Amen.